0: Hello and welcome to Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. Our first guest on season seven, titled Breaking the Rules of Healthcare, was Malcolm Gladwell. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, the number of new coronavirus cases is falling rapidly. It's at the lowest point since July 2021. Although the daily death toll is also falling, unfortunately, more than 1,500 Americans continue to die each day from the virus. Total US deaths are rapidly approaching 1 million, and deaths worldwide are close to 6 million. Most likely, the plunge in the number of new cases indicates that the combination of vaccination and rapid spread of Omicron among the unvaccinated has left the at-risk population relatively small. Early in the pandemic, we might have interpreted this as approaching herd immunity and hailing the possibility of the end to the pandemic. Now with the new strain being so contagious, able to break through both vaccine and disease-induced immunity and continuing to mutate, it harkens the coming of an endemic status instead. We can expect this coronavirus will be with us for years into the future. The combination of Omicron being easily transmitted but vaccinated individuals being protected against severe disease has led Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand to remove nearly all restrictions on its citizens. Similarly, multiple states have lifted requirements around mask wearing and will be ending the need for students to wear masks in schools, it's likely that a flood of other states and cities will follow. The BA.2 strain of Omicron that we discussed in the last episode now accounts for over one third of infections worldwide, but no more than five to 10% of cases in the US. It appears to be about 30% more transmissible than the BA.1, the original Omicron strain, better able to avoid the immunity generated by previous infections or by vaccination, but not particularly more dangerous. What we know about it still remains preliminary, but it appears the variant first introduced at the same time as BA-1 is growing in prevalence. Jeremy, this is the first time that two major variants descending from the same strain, in this case, Delta, emerge simultaneously. With the slightly less transmissible one dominating in initially, what we can learn is that viral spread is more complex than just ease of transmission. Statisticians are hypothesizing that the success of BA.1, which is the less contagious variant, may have resulted from human driven events like super gatherings. Because most of the new mutations That are found in the BA.2 strain aren't in areas of the RNA structure that are targeted by the current vaccines. Most scientists predict that vaccination will still be equally effective against severe disease caused by this variant and just as effective as it is against the BA.1. Overall, the level of concern is relatively low. However, BA.2 appears to be more resistant to treatment with what is called monoclonal antibodies or laboratory produced immune treatments so that this variant could be more dangerous for the unvaccinated when they become sick since there'll be fewer ways to address it. Finally, this week in a State of the Union address, President Biden said that drug stores would be offering free antiviral drug treatment. And this is the series of pills we discussed in previous episodes manufactured by Pfizer and they'd be giving them to people who tested positive in their stores for COVID immediately. How soon this will happen, that's not yet clear. Given the shortage of testing kits and limited availability of the medications to treat the virus, by the time people can easily avail themselves of the opportunity, the current
0: phase of the pandemic is likely to be over. Robbie, what's the current thinking on the need for a fourth shot? Jeremy, it remains pretty clear that
1: a fourth shot is in the future. Both Pfizer and Moderna are working on developing a next generation vaccine targeted at the new mutations on Omicron spike protein. But given how relatively well the three-dose regime continues to work, the implementation date for a fourth shot is likely to be further away than some pundits predicted last fall. Having said that, fourth doses are already authorized for immunocompromised people in the U.S and elderly patients in other nations like Great Britain and Israel. Preliminary data on the efficacy of a fourth shot, has been a little contradictory. Two recently published articles came to opposite conclusions. One showed that a fourth shot provided only marginally better protection over a third shot, while the second article concluded that it lowered the rates of both infection and severe disease. Factors such as the amount of circulating virus and the rate of vaccination in different communities may be accounting for the opposite results. You could uh, hypothesize that in areas of low risk, the vaccine may not add much value, while in areas of high risk, its impact could be great. Jeremy, in medicine, an area of constant debate is when events happen in close proximity, are they a result of just simple random correlation or actual causation? My observation is that since Russia has invaded the Ukraine and the battles have taken front page headlines, that COVID has become less top of the mind in people's minds. As a political observer, do you believe that these two events have occurred at similar moments in history, but the impact has been unrelated? Or do you think Americans are now less focused on their own danger, given what the Ukrainian people are having to endure?
0: Robbie, I think that for quite some time, American people had kind of come to terms with how dangerous COVID was and their own personal risk assessment for them and their families. People had come to terms if they wanted to be vaccinated or not, or boosted or not, or had their kids vaccinated or not. Uh, People that wanted to wear masks, wore masks, people that wanted to social distance, social distance, and people that wanted to go to packed sports stadiums uh, unmasked that did so. COVID already was becoming much less important in people's minds. That being said, COVID stopped dominating cable news, newspaper headlines, and social media as soon as the Ukrainian crisis started. Uh, People are going to think about and talk about whatever the headlines are in the news and whatever pundits are talking about on social media. As I said earlier, people had already come to terms with their own personal risk for severe illness from COVID, a humanitarian crisis caused by the biggest invasion in Europe since World War II is major news. People view the threat of NATO or the United States entering the war against Russia, the country with the second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, and, God forbid, a potential nuclear war, as much more terrifying with much more long-term geopolitical and economic implications than COVID in people's minds. Robbie, what's the current thinking uh, on the need for masking? Jeremy, this is evolving rapidly. Last week, the CDC released
1: new guidelines. Under their updated guidelines, about 70% of Americans would be able to remove their masks. The new approach focuses county by county and assigns each to one of three categories, low, medium, or high risk. And over 60% of counties now fall in the low or medium designation. The new focus, rather than being on the number of new cases, it's on the impact that the virus is having on the local health system including ER access and hospital bed availability. This approach would allow communities with less severe disease, usually secondary to vaccination or prior infection, to remove their restrictions. Of course, at this point, many cities and states are far ahead of the CDC. So how much real impact this policy shift will have remains debatable. I'm pleased that the CDC has finally recognized one size does not fit all. But why it took two years to figure that out, that remains a mystery to me. You know, we've tended to treat COVID-19 as a highly deadly disease that threatened every American. And it was, until highly effective vaccines against severe disease were introduced over a year ago. But rather than shifting policy in response to this unprecedented scientific advance, it took a full year. The biggest risk, of course, in easing restrictions is the possibility of a new variant arising that's capable of evading the immunity afforded by the current vaccines. Were that to occur, cases and deaths would soar and social distancing would need to be re-implemented until a new vaccine was developed, tested, and approved. Best guesses are that would take about four to six months.
0: Robbie, we've discussed how this pandemic began several times on this podcast. I've heard there's some recent new evidence. What's new and what does it mean? Jeremy, two studies were recently released.
1: They concluded that COVID-19 definitely began in the Wuhan open market. They used an interesting technique. It's actually similar to one that a researcher named John Snow used in the 19th century to identify the origin of a cholera epidemic. These researchers mapped the chronological spread by stall of what at the time was perceived to be simply an unusual form of pneumonia, which we later, of course, diagnosed as COVID-19. What they showed was that the earliest cases were all among vendors in very close proximity to each other in the southwestern quadrant of this market. And that, of course, is the location of most of the live animal sales. They then demonstrated the infection spread, first to other parts of the market, progressively into the surrounding community, and then ultimately into the periphery of Wuhan. If the spread had come out of the Wuhan virology lab, it would have moved in the opposite direction. And when the researchers tested the stalls, they found that the ones with the highest viral concentration were in this area, in particularly a stall that sold raccoon dogs, an animal that we know is capable of transmitting the virus. And finally, the researchers were able to show that the two genetic strains of COVID-19 at the start of this pandemic could both be identified in the market samples. And that's something that would be very unlikely to occur if the virus had come into the market. Rather than beginning there, you would have expected one or the other strain but not likely to have both appear around the same time. You know, many aspects of the history of this pandemic are gonna remain unclear and unlikely, and we're not gonna ever be able to resolve them. We probably will never know which animal in the wet market was first infected with the virus, or exactly how that happened. But the odds now are extremely, overwhelmingly high that the origin of COVID-19 was animal-driven not human error, in a research facility.
0: Robbie, a listener said she appreciated her debunking the myth about the vaccine having a negative impact on fertility in our last podcast. She recently heard that it can sometimes lead to sudden hearing loss. Is this true?
1: Jeremy, there are so many myths about this vaccine. I think we could probably fill every show with the newest one to debunk. When it comes to hearing loss, there's clear-cut evidence that the vaccine doesn't cause it. The CDC's Vaccine Reporting Center looked at the reports from people developing sudden hearing loss in the first few weeks after receiving a vaccine shot. Now remember that sudden hearing loss was a recognized medical problem before the vaccine. So invariably, some people would come down by chance, not from the vaccine that happened to be administered around the same time. The researchers began by calculating how often hearing loss happens after vaccination. And they also compared the hearing loss in the population that has been recently vaccinated against the total population. And they published their findings in the journal, JMA Otolaryngology. What they found is that the total number of cases of hearing loss, and they also included other medical problems, such as uh, tinnitus, were 550 during the particular study period. And then when they divide that number by the total number of people who had received a shot in the previous 21 days, the incidence was only 0.6 cases per 100,000 doses administered, a minuscule risk. When they then looked at the total number of cases of hearing loss, and individuals had received even one dose of the vaccine. And they divided that by the number of people who had received two doses. They calculated the frequency to be about 28 hearing-related problems per 100,000 people. But prior to the vaccine across the US, the same problems happened anywhere between 11 and 77 people per 100,000. So basically, the risks are relatively unchanged. And remember, since the numerator was the total number of cases of hearing problems, but in the denominator, they only put people who had received two doses that would lead to a higher incidence being calculated, an overcalculation of the risk following vaccination. As such, what we can say is that the frequency of major ear problem after vaccination is no more than would be expected and possibly even slightly lower. But finally, to rule out even this possibility that there might have been a subgroup of people who suffered this complication as a result of the vaccine, let's just say people with diabetes, they looked in detail to medical histories of these people, these individuals who developed sudden hearing loss, and they could find no common factor that might indicate a predisposition to this problem. The only logical conclusion the authors stated was that there was no association of the vaccine with hearing loss or any other otolaryngological difficulty. As such, any individual hesitating to be vaccinated out of this concern need not worry.
0: Robbie, in the last show, you mentioned that Pfizer's vaccine didn't seem to work well in children ages two to four. A listener with two young sons wanted to know if there was anything new. As you mentioned, Jeremy, in the
1: first round of trials, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine didn't protect kids two to four very well. Despite this outcome, Pfizer initially asked the FDA for approval to begin vaccinating kids, even those under five, on the assumption that a booster on top of the first two shots would provide protection, even though the efficacy of the two shots alone was minimal. When the request encountered strong opposition from scientists, the company delayed the request for authorization until after new trial results were available, trial results of a third dose being included, and so far we don't have the information from that testing. However, there is added data that indicate that the problems may be greater than just in the age two to four bracket. Specifically, researchers from New York State looked at how effective the Pfizer vaccine is in children ages five to 11. And to date, the Pfizer vaccine is the only one that's been approved by the FDA for kids under age 12. What they found was that the vaccine was much less effective in preventing infections in this age range than it is in older teenagers. Based on the information in their database, they concluded that the vaccine did protect against severe illness in children five to 11, but it seemed to offer virtually no protection for these kids against becoming sick. They calculated the efficacy of the vaccine against infection This is not severe infection, but all infection dropped from 68% to 12% in kids under 12. And in contrast, in older children above the age of 12, the protection remained at 67%. One possible explanation for this difference in outcome was dosing. Remember, children under 12 who were vaccinated were given only one-third the amount of mRNA as those over 12. And of course, the size difference between an 11 and 12-year-old often is minimal. As more data come out, scientists will sort this through, but regardless of the reason for the seemingly reduced protection in younger children, there are policy issues the data raise. We have to ask, why are we vaccinating this part of the population? If it's to protect children against the rare but ever-present danger of needing hospitalization or potentially dying, vaccination makes complete sense. So far, there have been 851 deaths from COVID-19 in kids under 17 and nearly 7,000 cases of multisystem inflammatory syndrome. This is a very serious condition happening in these children. In contrast, if the reason agencies like the CDC are recommending vaccination is to prevent children from getting infected and then spreading the virus to others, this research indicates that that argument is weaker. And confounding the issue is just published data from the CDC that indicate that when it comes to preventing infection, the problem may be that the vaccine doesn't work well in preventing mild infection in either those under or those over 12. As such, what we're seeing may have nothing to do with the dose administered, but only the higher transmissibility of the Omicron variant and if that's the case, Jeremy, a
0: third dose may be the solution for all groups. Robbie, our good news segment is something valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? The good news is how rapidly new COVID cases are falling and the slower
1: but downward curve on hospitalizations and deaths. As a result, life is slowly returning to normal for people in most states and masks are able to be taken off of kids in a growing number of schools. Psychologically, all these steps should improve people's mental health and the educational experience of kids. I've said and I've written in the past that reaching an endemic status relative to this virus would be a cause for celebration. I'm not yet seeing very many people jumping up and down at the progress that's happening, but I am seeing a smile on the faces of more people. At the same time, according to an article from the Wall Street Journal, 19% of Americans report having experienced major conflicts in their families due to disagreements over vaccination, mask wearing, and COVID-19 testing. These have happened particularly over the holidays and at birthday times. These are moments that should be joyous. The good news is that according to the Reporter, many of these families are now trying to make up and heal the rifts. As you know, I'm an optimist, and I believe that we've left the worst of this pandemic behind us. And assuming I'm correct, that would be great news with even better days ahead.
0: Robbie, listeners continue to thank us for focusing on the broader issues of healthcare and bringing the same honest analysis in those areas as we do for coronavirus. What can you tell them this week?
1: There is much happening in medicine as we transition out of the pandemic and come face to face with the problems that existed before COVID-19 reached our shores. The first comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Four academic economists looked at the relationship between hospital pricing and quality outcomes. They wanted to know, do you get what you pay for in medicine? Or even, do you get anything at all? when the bills are 50 to 100 percent higher at one inpatient facility compared to another. The answer was more complex and nuanced than the researchers assumed, but it provides a valuable insight into American healthcare. These economists separated all the hospitals in the study into those located into what they called concentrated markets. That's where there's been hospital consolidation and little competition currently exists, and they compared them to the ones that are not in concentrated areas in which two or more major competitors exist. They found that in the former, where consolidation had significantly reduced competition, hospital prices were very high and there was no increase in quality. In contrast, in the latter group, where competition persisted, quality did rise, although not as rapidly as cost. Their conclusion is that the higher prices in concentrated geographies, result from abuses of market power and monopolistic demands, while in more competitive geographies, the higher prices reflect investments in care delivery. And this is a huge conundrum that the healthcare industry faces. You know, we need consolidation to maximize volume, increase efficiency, but often when we do that, it leads to excess market power and bloated prices. As a nation we haven't figured out how to have one without the other. An analogous action the Department of Justice sued to block the acquisition of a health technology company called Change Healthcare by United Health Group. The argument was over market control. By purchasing this economy, the Biden administration pointed out that data from competitors would now be available to United Health which is the largest insurer in the United States allowing the company a competitive advantage in the insurance industry and by acquiring this other company the degree of competition would diminish for this type of data analytic expertise and united health could make it very expensive for competitors to have access to this increasingly important resource would united health use its expanded abilities for the benefit of all americans or would the company use the market power it created to drive up its profits at the expense of people insured by a competitor, the answers couldn't be determined a priori, and the Department of Justice didn't want to take the chance. These studies remind me of work by a brilliant healthcare economist from Princeton named Uwe Reinhart, who passed away, tragically, a few years ago. He wrote an off quoted article titled, It's the Prices, Stupid. He pointed out that the reason American healthcare costs twice as much as most countries, is that market forces have allowed hospitals, drug companies, doctors and nurses to be paid double what their peers are elsewhere. Consolidation, in order to gain market control, has been a major contributor to the continued rise in healthcare costs based upon his research. In other news, additional flaws in the American healthcare system were exposed. One study showed that over the past year, the average wait time for emergency room care has been prolonged. Almost four hours in Maryland, which is the longest in the nation, and an hour and 44 minutes in North Dakota, which is the shortest, but a prolonged time if you're having an emergent problem. And another study looked at the maternal mortality rates, already the worst among industrialized nations, and they found that had become worse in the United States. Maternal deaths rose from 20.1 per 100,000 live births in 2019 to 23.8 per 100,000 in 2020, the latest year reported. And I should point out for listeners, in every other country, the maternal death rates are dropping. And among Black women, the mortality rate was particularly problematic. For Black mothers, the maternal mortality was more than double the average it was at 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births compared to 19.1 for white women. And the rate of increase for black women was the highest among the different racial groups. It went up from 44 per to, as we said, 55.3 per 100,000 births. The researchers also noted that in addition to race, age paid, played a huge factor. Among mothers over the age of 40, mortality was per 100,000 births. This is a growing problem as women increasingly are delaying childbirth. Jeremy, how is your local community approaching issues like employer vaccine requirements and mandatory mask wearing?
0: Robbie, my community differs by business. Uh, Less and less businesses are requiring masks. Uh, The local school just lifted their mask mandate and made it optional for teachers and students. Um, They're still not allowing visitors into the school though. At local basketball and hockey games, you would see less and less masks. There are still a few locally owned businesses that require masks and proof of vaccine and booster, but I'm seeing these less and less. People seem to be returning to as normal of a life as possible. I just hope that we as a nation can look towards solving some of the other issues caused by the pandemic and its handling. The increased drug and alcohol abuse, mental health issues, economic devastation, inflation, impacts on childhood education, and more. People are so eager to move on from the pandemic that I fear we will put blinders onto the after effects, especially when the Ukrainian crisis is the hot news topic now. Robbie, any parting thoughts for our listeners?
1: Jeremy, I'd like to return to the battles raging in the Ukraine that I referenced in my first question to you. Like most Americans, I've found the courage of the Ukrainian people inspiring. Their willingness to come together for the benefit of all, despite the personal sacrifice. It's been incredible. And when I compare that to how our country responded to the threat posed by COVID-19, I'm distressed and embarrassed. Many commentators have described the pandemic using warlike language. And had it been an actual invasion, we would have been crushed. Rather than working as one to reduce deaths from COVID-19, Americans have battled each other over masks and vaccines. When I think of the Ukrainians, I just wonder what if the US had unified and we had fought together as one to defeat this viral invader, And maybe if everyone becomes embarrassed by our poor performance, we'll do better the next time. Jeremy, at least I maybe if everyone becomes embarrassed by our poor performance, we'll do better the next time. I hope so.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus the Truth, and have a great day.